The Edwin Smith Papyrus. Hippocrates. Aurelius Celsus. Galen. Archigenes. Claudius Galenus. Percival Park. Jean Godinot. Theodore Bavarian. Marie Curie. Ludwig Calvert. Janet Lane Clayton. Austin Hill. Richard Nixon. Harold Zura Hoffman. Chris Sweeney. Chris Hopkins. What do they all have in common? They all loved talking oncology. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Andrew Weikart here. I'm a genitourinary oncologist from the Austin Hospital and Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. Today we're going to talk about prostate cancer and particularly the options we have to treat someone with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. I was fortunate enough recently to catch up with both Professor Ian Davis and also Dr. Ainsley Campbell, who's an oncologist at the Austin Hospital, to discuss recent advances in treating this patient population with newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-sensitive cancer. Thanks for joining me today, Ainsley and Ian. Thanks for the invite, Andrew. Delighted to talk about newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. So we call this hormone-sensitive disease because we know that this cancer should respond initially to androgen deprivation for a period of time before they inevitably develop resistance to testosterone blockade. This podcast is proudly supported with an educational grant from Janssen Oncology. So Ainsley, I thought we could chat about the data surrounding our options for treating this patient population of newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-sensitive disease and options beyond just using androgen deprivation alone, which for many years has been the standard of care. There's been some major developments with large clinical trials, including Chartered, Enzymet and Stampede, to mention just a few that provide some clarity about options for men with this condition. So let's start with chemotherapy and the chartered study, because this was the first such trial that was really a game changer in getting additional systemic therapy earlier to patients before their cancers had become hormone refractory. Right. So the chartered study looked at patients with newly diagnosed hormone sensitive disease and randomised them to either receive six cycles of docetaxel chemotherapy or just ADT alone. Showed the patients survived on average 10 months longer if they received upfront chemotherapy. So that's close to a 30% improvement in overall survival for these patients. Yes. The interesting thing about Chartered, which has caused some controversy though, Ainsley, and I have spent some time thinking about, is the Chartered study showed that there was a pre-specified subgroup of patients with what was called high-volume disease. And only the patients who had high volume disease seemed to benefit. So that was defined in Chartered, wasn't it, by saying visceral metastases and or four or more sites of bony disease with at least one bone metastasis beyond the vertebral bodies and pelvis. And that was using conventional imaging. So the average benefit in patients who had high volume disease who received docetaxel compared to ADT alone was 17 months, which is really significant. That's 51 versus 34 months in terms of overall survival. So in comparison, though, people with low volume disease tended to do well anyway, and their survival was fairly similar. Both patients lived in excess of five years, and ongoing analysis of that outcome shows really no benefit in terms of overall survival. So in summary, my sort of way of looking at this trial is saying really docetaxel is a standard of care for fit patients with high volume disease. But in the real world, Ainsley, I mean, how do you determine who's fit for docetaxel chemotherapy? People with low volume disease tended to do well anyway, with survival in both groups, regardless of whether they received docetaxel, was over five years for both groups. And the hazard ratio really has not 
proven significant. So my way of looking at chartered is to say for patients with high volume disease, there's definitely a benefit. And in low volume disease, no significant overall survival benefit of using docetaxel. But the key question really in clinic is uh, which patients can actually tolerate the use of docetaxel. So how do you determine whether someone's fit, Ainsley? Sure. We know that docetaxel is surprisingly well tolerated in our patient population, provided there's a minimum performance status. We know that most of the standard toxicities from docetaxel chemotherapy are things like fatigue, nausea, diarrhea, low blood counts, peripheral neuropathy. But most patients tolerate this treatment quite well. 86% were able to complete all six cycles. So for instance, things like hospitalizations due to neutropenic fevers really only accounted for about 6% in the studies. Interesting quality of life data from the chartered trial showed an initial decrease for patients whilst on chemo before a subsequent significant improvement compared to their counterparts on ADT alone. So it's very much a case of short-term pain for some long-term gain. Agreed. The chartered's not the only study, is it, that's looked at docetaxel in the first-line setting because we also know about results from GTAG and Stampede, which have also looked at adding docetaxel to ADT. So what's your take on those studies? The GTAG data from France was first published in 2013 and the only one to show no survival benefit. It enrolled half as many patients as the chartered study. More than half of the cohort from GTAG had low-volume disease as per the chartered criteria or low-risk disease, and many patients in ADT monotherapy arm ended up receiving selfage docetaxel anyway, but backing up the results from chartered study was Stampede. Yeah, right. So the Stampede trial is interesting, isn't it? Because this was a study out of the UK which had multiple different arms comparing novel interventions with ADT to ADT alone. And whenever something new and interesting came along, a new arm was added to this. And one of those arms was the addition of docetaxel. So in Stampede, patients who received docetaxel had a 20% overall improvement in overall survival compared to those who just received ADT alone. So you know, a similar hazard ratio to what was seen in Chartered, so really confirming those results. Interestingly, they didn't divide their population though did they Ansley into high volume or low volume and included in fact some patients who had presented with de novo high risk non-metastatic prostate cancer so that study in particular included patients who could have had just node positive disease who had two out of three of either t34 or psa over 40 or a gleason score greater than eight post-surgery or even post-radiotherapy but the survival benefit and overall survival benefit was still here confirmed mostly with statistical significance um, to those patients with metastatic disease if you have a look at the hazard ratio in patients with non-metastatic M0 disease, you know, it still crosses one. The hazard ratio is 0.93, confidence intervals crossing one. Yeah, that's right, Andrew. I mean, it's also important to consider the crossover rate of patients who didn't receive docetaxel upfront in these trials, given the implications for analysing overall survival data, of course. So, for instance, only 35 to 40% of patients in the control arms of Chartered and Stampede went on to have docetaxel. And this compares to 62% of the patients in the Getog study. Right, so that's an area of controversy where some people might say the survival benefits due to the docetaxel arm only being given in that, you know, patients receiving it up front and it was not appropriately given to patients as they became castrate resistant might be a factor in terms of the difference with the GTAG study, I suppose. But it's interesting, a lot of patients in the GTAG study also had recurrent 
disease after initial surgery for prostate cancer or radiation therapy. So against that argument is that um, patients actually had recurrent cancer in GTAG, and that's why Although there was many more patients who received follow-on bocetaxel, perhaps the benefit in GTAG was less because of that issue of recurrent disease rather than de novo metastatic disease being more sensitive. Sure. I guess there's taken together evidence looking at the three studies, though, meta-analysis now, which really does confirm that significant improved overall survival benefit of patients with docetaxel chemotherapy. And, you know, the studies taken together have that hazard ratio of 0.77 compared to ADT alone. So in real-world setting, many of us are using docetaxel and have become familiar with using it. But in the last few years, the data has begun to emerge that there might be something different to give patients, which is seemingly attractive, and that's using one of the novel antiandrogen-based agents that we've been using in the castrate-resistant setting, such as enzalutamide or abiraterone. So that's really a question of whether or not we should be using those type of drugs. So thinking about enzalutamide and enzimet, so turning to Ian, can you summarise enzimet and the main takeaway points that we need to know about? So put briefly, Enzimet was a clinical trial involving men with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So men whose prostate cancer has spread, but they've not yet had hormonal therapy for this cancer. And the standard of care in this situation is to use testosterone suppression with or without a standard anti-androgen drug added to that. We asked the question whether addition of another drug, enzalutamide, in this situation might actually improve outcomes for these men. We know that enzalutamide is valuable much later in the disease course when men have castrate-resistant prostate cancer. But this study was about bringing it earlier, as we have done with other medications like docetaxel chemotherapy, to see if we could improve overall survival. And there are a range of other endpoints as well. We completed recruitment to this study in March 2017 and put on over 1,100 patients across Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, UK, Canada and the United States. And there was a lot of interest in the outcomes of the clinical trial. At our first interim analysis, which took place in March of 2019, we found a strong signal in favour of the intervention groups. So men who were allocated to the enzalutamide arm had a 33% improved chance of survival compared to those on the control arm. That translated at the three-year mark to a difference in survival of 72% going up to 80% if you're on the enzalutamide arm. We found that if you had already made a decision to treat this man with docetaxel, then addition of enzalutamide did not give us any further detectable improvement in survival. And it was associated with additional side effects as well. We looked at other measures such as how long it took for the PSA to start rising again or other measures of clinical progression. And in that situation, there was a clear indication that addition of enzalutamide to docetaxel plus testosterone suppression gave us further benefit but that has not yet translated into a survival benefit. So the clear message out of all of this was enzalutamide is now another option in this setting in parts of the world where it's available, and that's not the case yet in Australia. All right, thanks, Ian. Ainsley, let's talk, though, about trials that have looked at abiraterone as a treatment option for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. We could start off with the extension of the Stampede study One of the rolling arms that was developed looked at patients who received abiraterone along with ADT. As our listeners know, abiraterone is a daily tablet that blocks a key enzyme involved in androgen synthesis from the adrenals. Patients who received abiraterone in combination with prednisolone had a significant overall survival benefit compared to those who received ADT alone. The hazard ratio there of 0.63. 
The docetaxel arm from the trial was compared to those on abiraterone. Abiraterone seemed to have a PFS benefit, but overall survival rates were similar. We should take into account the small number of patients with recurrent disease in this study, as you said earlier. They didn't seem to have a survival benefit. Having said that, the likelihood is the numbers were too small to show a statistical benefit in the analysis of this subgroup. Yeah, true. I mean, there's also the Latitude trial, which, like Stampede, had an arm looking at the addition of abiraterone, and that was compared to a standard of care arm with ADT. And the trial design, though, was different, wasn't it, Ainsley, compared to Stampede, in that patients actually had to have what they called high-risk disease, different from high-volume disease. So this was defined as two out of three of the following Gleason greater than or equal to eight or more than at least three or more lesions on a bone scan and measurable visceral lesions, so either lung or liver metastasis, which is pretty uncommon. And the data has been published in the last few years and there was a 17-month median overall survival benefit on patients on Abbey compared to those just receiving ADT alone. That's, again, a hazard ratio of 0.66, which is pretty favourable. 17 months, that's the difference between 36 and 53 months in median overall survival. So really impressive data, similar to what we've seen with docetaxel. But again, we're sort of in this problem where we can't really yet make a comparison across trials between the outcomes with abiraterone to those treated on chartered with docetaxel. I think all we have is what you've referred to is that small subgroup in the stampede arm where you've mentioned the comparison where overall survival was similar between those treated with docetaxel and abiraterone. And I suppose the other issue in this trial and stampede is how many patients crossed over back to abiraterone in the castrate-resistant setting. Yeah, exactly. And again, crossover rates for those on ADT to antiandrogen therapy were around 26% in both studies. So it was particularly notable from the Latitude trial was that the patients in abiraterone arm who went on to have subsequent therapies had a significantly longer progression-free interval on their second line of treatment. So there's growing interest in this and, you know, often termed PFS2 to assess the effects of treatment past progression. So we want to ensure that we don't just delay progression and not make inroads into overall survival. But with abiraterone showing benefit, it's worth asking how to choose between the different options. Right. So with abiraterone as an option and enzalutamide, I think, you know, how can we choose? And Ian, do you have thoughts on this? I think one of the commonest questions we've asked is not quite what you're asking me, but probably one of the commonest questions we've asked is, okay, what are you going to choose now? You know, we've got enzalutamide, we've got apalutamide, abiraterone, docetaxel itself, maybe testosterone suppression by itself. And I think a lot of people came to us saying, oh, you're going to show some sort of superiority over these other treatments, which we could never going to be able to do. So one question was, which one would you choose and, and which one is going to be the best? And I don't think there's a right answer to that. But I also think that there's no wrong answer. And I think there's really been a fear of missing out from some people. So a man who might have a recommendation from his doctor that he should have docetaxel for various clinical reasons should not feel that he's going to be undertreated. He's going to get an effective treatment. And we've got no reason to think that that's going to be any better or worse than any of the other available treatments. There'll be patient-specific reasons why you might choose one agent over another. If there are financial constraints, a short course of very cheap docetaxel might be a very good option. If you have cardiac failure or diabetes, abiraterone and prednisolone might not be the best option. If you've got cognitive impairment or seizure risk, enzalutamide would not be the best option. So it's really going to come down to what's available and the uh, patient's preferences and their own situation. What does a clinician need to know about enzalutamide when it's used in the hormone-sensitive 
setting rather than the cast rate resistance setting. Is there a difference in what was seen in the trial? I think really overall we didn't see any unexpected side effects with the use of enzalutamide added to testosterone suppression. What we did see was that when it was combined with docetaxel, we saw worsening of the toxicities associated with enzalutamide, but also the worsening of some of the docetaxel toxicities. And there's no clear explanation for that at this point. So Ainsley, how do we put all these results together when we have our next patient in clinic? It's getting to the stage where it's quite confusing to determine the optimal sequence of treatment for these patients. Of course, in Australia, we're restricted by the PBS, only subsidising docetaxel, along with androgen deprivation therapy for newly diagnosed hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Cost of abiraterone and enzalutamide here in Australia is significant, you know, between fifteen to $30,000 per year. Yeah, right. There's not that many patients that can afford that in clinic, is there? Not in the public sector, no. That's my experience. And so what about sort of the ongoing use of abiraterone and side effects? What do you think about that and how that in place with treatment selection? Yeah, I guess you're committed to long-term use with a novel anti-androgen therapy and you must consider the potential longer-term side effects with that versus upfront short-term chemotherapy where, as we mentioned earlier, there's sort of short-term pain for potential long-term gain. Right. I find in the real world often when a patient comes in, as compared to a sort of trial population of well-selected fit patients, you know, patients often have cardiac failure or diabetes. And when you have a look at issues with diabetic control and hypertension and fluid retention, that does play a part, you know, even if we put cost aside and thinking through sort of longer term consequences and the contribution to morbidity. And I suppose as well, there's pill count too, right? Many of our patients have a lot of tablets that they're on and compliance can be a problem. Patients that need to take, say, abiraterone between mealtimes and so forth. So that's one issue is selecting patients regarding their actual side effect profile and how they'll tolerate it. But what about imaging and sort of defining patients based on the staging they're getting? Yeah, you're right, Andrew. So, I mean, I think what's really interesting to acknowledge is the use of PSMA PET, which seems to occur more often in Australia. Uh, You know, all the studies that we've looked at today included conventional imaging with nuclear medicine bone scans and CTs, but it's important to acknowledge the role of novel imaging that's really sort of increasing traction in Australia presently. Yeah, right. It's not uncommon to see a patient who's had a PSMA PET scan in the Australian setting as initial staging for their de novo metastatic disease. And that might detect a large number of bone metastases or even visceral metastases. How we interpret that in the context of trying to apportion patients into high volume or low volume disease has not been clearly defined by the studies. And keep in mind issues such as high volume definition on the charted study, which many of us are now looking at in regard to having a choice for docetaxel for patients and advising the use of docetaxel. None of those patients were defined by PSMA PET. So it's really a little bit confusing and we're going to have to wait, I think, for some of the updated results from de novo metastatic studies that have incorporated PSMA staging. Some of those studies are just underway now to really find out. So it's been an interesting discussion. Thanks for joining me, Ainsley. Yeah, we've covered docetaxel, abiraterone, enzalutamide as options for adding on to androgen deprivation therapy. Thanks so much for discussing all these interesting topics with me. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. 
this podcast was produced by Joseph Iskier and Kara Webb and made possible by the generous support of Janssen. Views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and are not necessarily reflective of the views and opinion of Janssen Select Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof. This information is not medical advice and no decision relating to the management of any patient should be made with reliance on the information contained in this presentation. It's your responsibility to prescribe appropriate treatment in accordance with your clinical judgment and by reference to the appropriate Australian product information or other information supplied with the relevant product, including in relation to any indication, dosage and route of administration. So if you're still with us after that disclaimer, we hope you join us for other podcasts. (laughs) 